Well, as Mark said, I've got, uh, I've got a lot of content to get through, so we're going to roll pretty quickly today. I'm excited to share this with you. This is the, the application, this is the so what of so much that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. And um, just to kind of get oriented as, and as to where we are in all this stuff, um, you know, so far we've looked at the idea of walking worthy, and we've identified that, a lot to my surprise, um, in my study here was that that unity really is the driving force that Paul's trying to get to here. And so we said that unity is a worthy goal. And one of the principal reasons for Paul to exhort us to walk is so, uh, to walk in this manner that's worthy is so that we might be unified. Unified among the body of believers called to the church of which Christ is the head. And we said it's a, it's a body metaphor that is very real and Christ is the head of that. And we've understood that in addition to walking in a way that's going to be unified, that we have to be maturing to do that. We should no longer be like children tossed around by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And we've discussed that this desire to be unified in our walk is driven by love. And the kind of love that is to emulate that of God the Father is when He sent Christ as a sacrifice for us. So we spoke about that, and that was in week one, where this unification was to be taking place among all of us who are in this room. Um, So we also discussed the means by which we are to accomplish a worthy walk, and that that pursues unity, and that is to understand that we're not worthy. The means by which we accomplish this is an attitude of humility, and that was the focus of last week's, to really understand what did God do on our behalf What part did we play in it? If you guys remember, it was zero, right? God did everything, and that should, by extension, cause us to be uh, humble. And we said that God's remarkable plan of redemption through 1, 3 through 14, that beautiful, just opening fuselage of truth of what we're to be grounded in, that God imparted abundant blessings through His Spirit. That before he created the world, God lovingly chose a people for himself. And we talked about the doctrine of election and predestination in that. And then one day God will bring his rebellious creation, that's us, under the reign of Christ. And then we also talked about the magnitude of God's power where, where Paul is praying on behalf of all the people just to understand the power that we have available to us all the time, and we try to do things in our own power, in our own understanding, instead of leaning on the power of God and the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul wants us to have an expanded awareness of this. And then, then under that, that humility part, we also understood that we were new in Christ. We have a new life in Christ. We saw the horrible plight of believers before our experience of Christ in our new life in Christ now. And this was described, if you recall, in, um, in, <coughs> excuse me, in last week, that it was described as passing from death to life. And we have a participation with Christ in his resurrection, his exaltation. And then the salvation is a gift from God that enables us to live the lives to which we've been called to live. And so we have this amazing gift from the Lord, and all that should drive us to our knees and literally preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis so that we might be humble, not puffed up, because the more you understand the gospel in your own life, the more you realize you are unworthy. And that was the, the beautiful part about that. And so that's what we talked about uh, the last couple of weeks. And if you weren't here, um, you missed it. And if you were here, then hopefully you remember some of that. And so today, 
we're going to see, you know, okay, so now what? What are we, what is it that we're going to do now to, to show ourselves uh, to be worthy, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? And we, we're going to live out our new identity in a community of believers. So how are we going to do that? So if you would, turn to your Bibles to Ephesians 4.25. We're going to be looking at 4.25 through 5.2 this week. And we're really talking about this really practical aspect of taking off a lot of junk and putting on a lot of good stuff, right? I mean, that's, what's that? (laughs) Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we're going to do this in a way that hopefully is practical and will drive your understanding of why we're to do this. And it's not the easiest thing to do all the time. So let's read together here. I'll just go ahead and read through it for the sake of time. Therefore, having been having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do, not <clears throat> and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Forgiving, um, sorry, um, I lost my spot, I apologize. And do not, uh, where was I? Thank you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. And therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Sorry, I have a tickle this morning, you guys. So this section, we see... Um, that because God has created the church to be a community of believers growing together to maturity, as we talked about last week, the development of these put-ons, these social virtues, uh, becomes extremely important. And so Paul exhorts us to rid ourselves of vices that are detrimental to this unity and to cultivate virtues that build up community. It's very simple, and I love how pragmatic Paul is in this. Um, the most important and summarizing virtue that we're going to see all this is love. And that is the driving force that sent Christ to die on your behalf. And it's the driving force that will be behind every good thing that we're able to do in this, con- in this context of unity is love for other people. It's defined by the Father's love in giving His Son and by Christ's love and sacrificing Himself. As a good leader, as a servant leader that Christ is, He went first to show us how to do it. And so we're going to look at this the way Paul looked at it. We've got five vices to take off, and we've got six virtues to put on. So we're going to develop a list here. If you're taking notes, you can, you can do it under this heading here. And then we're going to go further than that. But in our first section here on 425 to 30, we're going to take a look at these five vices to take off and six virtues to put on. So the first thing we want to do is we want to take off lying And we want to replace it. We want to put on truthfulness. Verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
Paul starts off with an appeal to speak truthfully. Honesty with one another is essential for mutual trust. And Paul uses this conjunction, this therefore, that roots this list of things that we're going to look at here back into verse 424, really 417 through 24. Um, and he, this is where he discusses the new self, take putting off the old man and, and putting on the new creation of God. And so uh, I think it would be helpful for us to go back just for a second uh, and read that. This was a late edition for me, so um, but it jumped out at me that we need to understand where we came from before we jump too hard into this list here. So in uh, 4.17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. So a distinction between believers and unbelievers. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. So he's really completing a thought here, and you got to get a running start at it because he's, one, making a distinction between who believers and unbelievers should look like in the community. And then he says, by the way, that was once you, so knock it off and start acting like Christ died for you. Here's some practical ways to do that. Stop lying. That's the idea. So that's what he tells us to do. Stop lying. We're to put away or take off falsehood. Take off ties, this exhortation, to the earlier appeal to take off the old self that we just talked about. So those who, uh, Palm, Psalms 5, 6 says, those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. Later in Ephesians, Paul will list knowing the truth and telling the truth as an essential part of the believer's struggle against the devil in 6.14. And this is because Satan does not hold to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Jesus said when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies, from John 8. And so, clearly God does not like it when we lie, right? So very simple. So what do you do? If you have that knowledge, stop lying. Stop lying. So what do you do? You put on speaking the truth. Put on truthfulness. He says this in the present tense, which is saying, always be telling the truth. Let this be a common character trait of you. It's so much easier to be truthful than to be a liar. So let this always be who you are. Be characterized as a truthful person. This is the absence of telling lies and cultivating the practice of truth-telling. And this lays the foundation for trust within our body, within this whole concept and this theme of being unified with one another. First, there's got to be trust. And that trust is founded on that, hey, I'm a trustworthy person, so are you, so let's be real with one another. He says, for we are members of one another, one of another, rather. He could have based this on... Um, an appeal not to lie and tell the truth because that's who God is. God is truth. We could have said that. 
But here he really wants us to consider how foundational trust is for the community and builds itself up in love. And so, number one, stop lying and start telling the truth. We're going to be simple as Paul is simple. No hidden meaning here, you guys. Next one, take off uncontrolled anger and put on controlled anger. Verses 4, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. So Paul's warning us against the dangers of anger here. He cautions that it's best to deal with it quickly because if anger is left unchecked, it can make you susceptible to the attacks of the devil, the evil one. And so we're going to see a distinction here where the other ones are very black and white. Absolutely stop doing this. Absolutely start doing that. Here, anger is, there's a caveat. There's a spot where anger is okay, but we have to be very careful with it. And nine times out of ten, that's not biblical. That's just my own thought. Your anger is going to be unholy and sinful. And so, but since Paul makes a distinction, we'll make a distinction. He says there's an appropriateness to anger, and he regards it as a proper and sometimes essential emotion. And at the same time, he considers it highly volatile and very dangerous. And any of you guys who struggle with temper or gals, you know what I'm talking about. So instead of prohibiting anger all the way, he says that it, it should not be an ongoing characteristic of your life. It should be felt and expressed on certain occasions like God's anger over his people's idolatry, that is a prominent theme throughout the Old Testament. The Lord says in uh, Deuteronomy thirty-two twenty-one, they made me jealous by what is not by what is no God and angered me by their worthless idols. And so it appears here that Paul is affirming that there is an appropriateness sometimes. And in doing so, he's validating the emotion of the Lord. The Lord felt it, and so it's real. It's an okay thing to have, certainly. He's, he feels it when he's confronted by our own sinfulness. Uh, Mark 3, 5, And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. At the same time, it has to be counterbalanced with James's advice when he says we should be slow to anger in James 19. And so this leads to Paul's warnings about the danger of anger in the next three things that he's going to tell us to do. And he says, do not sin. He recognizes that there is a, there's a kind of anger and an intensity that is sinful. This comes when we express anger from our own sinful motives, when we have our own injured pride, or when we are wanting something, we have envy, uh, when we are spiteful with one another. That is a sinful anger. It's completely self-indulgent and completely prideful, and therefore it's sinful. Even our puffed-up theology anger is most of the time sinful. You're not jealous because God's being denigrated. You are uh, upset that somebody else doesn't do it as well as you do. you got to be really careful with this. So God knows the exact right spot to be angry. Most of the time, we don't. So even though there is a protection here to say, look, there is a spot that you can be angry, it's going to be a slim time frame, a slim margin where we're going to righteously express anger. It will happen, but it will be slim. Um, the kind of anger out of pride and envy and spite is never appropriate. And it's exactly to what Paul's talking about in verse 431. And we're going to get to that a little bit deeper in a second. So another thing that Paul um, warns us against is letting anger endure over time. It puts us in a vulnerable situation. 
he says that the, the sun should not go down on your anger. And this is the idea that persistent anger uh, is dangerous. And, and it lies, it's dangerous because the devil will exploit it for his own purposes. And this is why he says, give no opportunity to the devil. And Paul presents the devil as a very powerful and very real foe. And 6.11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so this whole idea of having this adversary, not only in Ephesians, but throughout all of Paul's writing, is really right there. It's palpable for him. And he understands it. And what we, we don't engage well when we don't recognize that we are in a fight. And that's the idea. And next week, we're going to look at the spiritual armor. And that's the whole premise of that, is that there is a fight going on, and you've got to understand it. So here he's saying, if you allow anger to endure over time, then you are giving an opportunity. You have a breach in your wall that the devil can run through and exploit and, and make headway into your camp, your heart. And so, um, so that's the idea. And then uh, O'Brien, uh, to quote him, says that this warning not only provides a motive for controlling anger, but is equally applicable to any behavior there that is characteristic of the old self. And I like that because it reminds us of the greater context that we're not, it's not just anger that can give a foothold for the devil. It's all of that old self stuff gives a foothold. And, you're, and you all will sin and screw up in your own specific ways. And so you know where that is for you. And so some of you, it's anger, and you know it right now, and you've identified it. And others, it's like, well, no, it's really covetousness for me. It's jealousy or whatever it is. So the next section here, we have take off stealing and put on hard work. 428, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So here he's addressing the issue of stealing, and in place of theft, he says, work hard. But it's interesting here, not work hard so you have a bigger, better, better house. Work hard, why? For the purpose of sharing with your brothers and sisters in the body of the church. And that's an interesting caveat. We don't think about that all the time. Some of you are gifted in that, and, that's, and you're thinking about that often. But this is not a new concept for God, this idea of don't steal. Uh, it's in the Ten Commandments, if you guys recall that. You shall not steal in Exodus twenty fifteen. Paul reiterates it to the Romans in, in Romans thirteen nine, and tells the Corinthians that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians six ten. So don't steal, in case you guys didn't know that. Okay? Instead of stealing, Paul says... Uh, he suggests work hard. Work hard. He wants us to work hard. And the word used here has the idea of laboring to the point of weariness or exhaustion. He says it again in the present imperative, which says that it should be always occurring. I found in my, my uh, commentary study, I'm not a grammar guy and a grammar gal. Like she knows grammar. And every time Steve says something about present, participle, you know, she's like, uh-huh. And I'm like, what? But the more I get into commentaries, I, the, these things matter in the original language. It's always happening. Always be exhausting yourself and not stealing or not even taking a little bit, a little skim of what is not yours. Just work hard for what purpose? Purpose of this hard work goes beyond just providing food and shelter for your own needs. He's saying the principal motivation here needs to be to meet the needs of the body. So we have something to share. 
And this is selflessness in the life of the community. Again, our broader context of unity. Walk worthy of the manner of the calling to which you've been called, and the theme being unity. So Jesus said this in John 13, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then Calvin, um, who we all love, No one may live to himself alone and neglect others. All must devote themselves to supplying others' necessities. So I like that. I like how he says that. Okay, the next thing here. Let take off filthy talk and put on edifying talk. 429 through 30. He says here, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this is number four. And it's dealing with how we speak with one another. And I would add to that uh, how we speak to one another in our hearts also. Some of you are very quiet seethers. You don't say it outright. You don't get a free pass on that. If you have those words or thoughts in your heart, we're talking to you too. So Paul's aware of the power of words to, to help He's also aware of the power of words to hurt people. And he is strongly encouraging us as believers to strengthen and encourage each other in the way that we speak to each other. So corrupting talk, I took this straight from the commentary because I think it's, it's great to get the specific meanings of words. Corrupting talk can also be translated as filthy talk, which basically means rotten or putrid. It was used to refer to rotten wood, diseased lungs, rancid fish, withered flowers, and rotten fruit. And the image of rottenness suggests that Paul wants us to develop a kind of like a gag reflex. This is, this is um, Arnold's words, and I, it's appropriate. To develop a gag reflex to unhealthy ways of talking that we, will repulse us and cause us to clean up the way we speak to one another. It should make us want to go into the bathroom and get rid of it. That's what it should do. And we should have that reflex to it. This corrupting or filthy talk should be replaced with good words that edify and build up. And you think about this in the context of last week, everything that Christ did for you. How are you going to go run off and speak in the way that sometimes we do? That's the idea of that. In the bigger context, how could we allow this? This this good words that edify or build up is the opposite of corrupting talk. It's it's speech that builds each other up. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. We need to understand how powerful our words can be in building up or tearing down one another. And then Paul says, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And the idea here is that we're called to impart a blessing on each other. And we can do this through timely, well-spoken words that are appropriate in difficult situations. By the way, that means you can't run from difficult situations to impart a kind word on somebody who's going through maybe one of the biggest trials in their life or is just at the beginning point at the precipice to going on a walk with sin. Both of those need us to come along in this idea of being unified. And you can't run from that. You can't be fearful for that. And we have no reason to be fearful for that because of everything we just learned last week and everything God's done for us. And we have the power of God to come and enable us 
And so there's no fear in that. And so if you see a brother in error, we'll talk about this later, go to him. Have a timely, good word that builds him up and encourages him or maybe admonishes the sin that you see. And go and run towards that instead of running away from that. Right? Divalbus is a Marine. He ran towards gunfire. He didn't run away from it. If everybody ran away from it, our country would be a very different place. Our church body will be very different if we all run away from things that we see, whether it's trial or sin. We need to run towards the fight. And that is very appropriate. And also, it's good to, to remember here, too, that Paul's not just saying, if you are gifted in building up somebody, then you go and speak to so-and-so about their situation. He's calling all of us to do it. So you don't get a free pass on that, okay? It's not because you're specially gifted. Now, others are more gifted, but that doesn't mean that we don't all have a responsibility. In fact, we do. And he says in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Evil speech, like all forms of unholy, sinful behavior, deeply hurt the Spirit whom God has given us and indwelled us and empowered us with. Isaiah 63.10 says, Isaiah recalls the exodus and how God redeemed his people with love and mercy, yet they rebelled against him in the desert and it grieved his Holy Spirit. For, sometimes we forget about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 78.40 says, How often they rebelled against him in the desert and grieved him in the wasteland. And Paul understands that the new people of God face a similar danger. We too have been redeemed by God in an act of his love and his mercy, just like the Israelites did, right? Just like if you think about the Exodus story and how that went down, that is the same for us, just in a different way through Christ's death. So we too have been redeemed by God just like them. And, and it was an act of his love for us just like it was for them. It was an act of his mercy for us just as it was for the Israelites. And we too, how often have you shook in your heads at those silly Israelites continually bumping their head against the wall? We too run the risk of rebelling against God in our own words and actions. We're doing the same exact thing as when they, they barked and grumbled against the manna that Steve spoke to, um, to us about a couple of weeks ago. When they were when they were complaining about God's provision, and you go, oh, how could they do that? And it grieved God. The same thing happens when we use these words that tear down. You should gag on them. Just like the Israelites did on the overabundance of the bird, of the meat that they got. And so this truth should motivate us. <clears throat> Whether there is filthy talk, stealing, uncontrolled anger, lying, or anything else that we might add to the list, we cannot indulge that. We have to remove it. We have to take it off and put on the opposite. The opposite. Okay, so next. A little bit of a soapbox moment there. Sorry, guys. Take off a bitter heart that leads to abusive talk and put on a tender heart that leads to forgiveness. So important. Verses 431 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so if you're keeping score, this is number five. He tells us to rid ourselves of feelings of bitterness that will eventually lead to intense anger or abusive speech, or both. 
He picks up the theme of anger that we spoke on in verse 26 here. And so he conceded and even encouraged a righteous anger in that passage that we looked at. As long as it was kept under control and existed for a short amount of time, we didn't give a foothold for the devil. Here is very different. Here he sternly warns against the danger of unrighteous anger. He says that it should be removed or taken off. This word bitterness is derived from the description that some, of something that has a bitter taste. It refers to a hard-heartedness that harbors resentment about something. Something that happened in the past, usually, and you just hang on to it. And you hang on to it. Think of gum that tastes so fantastic when you first start chewing it. And then if you chew on that thing long enough, you're like, man, what is this thing in my mouth? It's bitter. Like, like this started off so good. How can it be bad so quickly, right? the same thing, although not really the same thing at all. Similar uh, in this situation here because you're just, you're chewing on it over and over and over again. Now it's bitter. It's bitter. Then he also uses the word rage. This is used to express human anger. Our guttural anger. Proverbs says, wise men turn away from anger, but a fool gives vent to his anger. How often have I been the foolish Proverbs 29 man? And note here the progression. This is so important. Uh, there's consistency throughout Scripture. We're going to look at James here as well. Of, but you see the progression of sin. And you know where do you stop it? Where do you look at it? It's at the beginning, in the heart. Let's look at this progression here. The progression that Paul lays out, and you see it recognized in this pattern. Uh, if you see it in your, yourself or in situations you've been in, you, you'll recognize it. Bitterness and anger and slander eventually lead to yelling, shouting, and screaming. You've, you can't contain it anymore. You're so ticked off, and you've so built this thing up in your mind, and now you're going to express it. And now that'll look out, right? Watch out. Woe be to anybody that gets in your way or is a direct recipient of that. And this, this ultimately leads to malicious talk with all malice. This is any kind of speech that is defamatory or abusive. And so that we see here then that sin is cultivated in the heart. Bitterness, that's a heart issue. And it gives way to anger. That is a, another heart issue that's developing, it's growing. That Petri dish is starting to turn into something very real. And then it produces slanderous and malicious speech that destroys, brings death to community life. It brings death to our unity as a body of which we remember that Christ is the head. And so we have to stop sin where it starts in the heart. So if you find yourself holding on to something, get rid of it. We're going to tell you what to put on in a second. But I want to also look at James 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, bring forth death. brings forth death. And so we have that very um, explicit development of sin and how that starts. Where does it start? In your heart when your lust gives you uh, a desire, something that you can't have. That desire turns into sin because now you're coveting. That's the sin of covetousness. It's also in the Ten Commandments. God knew what he was talking about from the beginning. 
And then once you've done that, once you've brought forth sin, it brings death into your life. And we know that the end of sin is death. And so James gives us a very quick snapshot of your heart. And Paul develops it into a specific area of bitterness and anger and speech and how that brings forth death in your own unity and church body. So it's very similar. And so where do we stop it? Just like you would if you were saying, I want that big house or I want that person who is not mine or I want, I want, I want. You stop it. Same thing here. Same thing here. So what's the antidote? So with our kids, right, you know, if you just tell them what not to do all the time, they say, that's great. What do I do? I'm going to tell you what to do. All right. So put on a tender heart that leads to forgiveness. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And so instead of a bitter, angry heart that spews hateful comments and hurtful comments, Paul tells us to put on a tender heart that is not only kind, but is also forgiving when we are offended. We are to look to the cross and emulate the way that God bestowed this forgiveness on us. That's why one through three is so foundational. That's why Paul doesn't just start with this. He starts with one through three. Remember everything God did for you and then withhold forgiveness. No, do what was done to you. Forgive. This is similar to what he told the Colossians. Put on then, similar, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Look, we are a room crammed full of sinful people. We're going to wound and hurt one another. We're not going to do things right. There's going to be preferences. Somebody should have done something differently in your eyes, and you're going to hold on to that, or you're going to forgive it. And you're going to let it go. And you're going to choose to look at something good. And you're going to build them up. And sometimes, we talk about it in our family sometimes, sometimes you fake it until you can make it. Right? Just practice it. And it's funny how your heart will follow sometimes the actions. Right? Like Joe has ticked me off this morning. Dude, it's good to see you. And some level it's good to see you. And then I'll work that up in the back end. Right? And then all of a sudden you remember, I don't remember what I was mad at Joe about. Like, and we could not have been that big of a deal. And if it's sin, then it's sin. And that's a whole different issue. And we'll deal with that. But most of the time, it's your preference, your pride that was wounded. And you're going to hold on to it. You're going to let it fester and make it sinful. And you're going to bring death into the unity of the church. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. So be forgiving. The other thing he says here, um, kindness. It's an attribute of God himself. Romans 2, 4 says that for the kindness of God leads people to repentance. God is not only morally good, but he actually actively does good on our behalf. Kindness, by the way, is utterly inconsistent with abusive talk or rudeness. They are incompatible. You can't do both. You can't do both. Second thing he talks about, since malicious talk stems from a rotten heart, a change must transpire within, um, within us before the behavior can change. And so that's where this idea of tenderheartedness comes in. It literally means to have healthy intestines. Um, he says in uh, Philippians 1.8, uh, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. That yearn, that's the 
same, that affection rather is the same word. And MacArthur says it well. It's the same word for tender heartedness, heartedness and, um, and, and affection. MacArthur says the word literally refers to the internal organs, which are part of the body that reacts to intense emotion. It becomes the strongest Greek word to express compassionate love, a love that involves your entire being. That is what he's trying to get you to. From your guts, you are tender-hearted with that person, and you feel it because you remember that how tender-hearted Christ was for you. Feelings of bitterness and resentment and a desire for retaliation have to give way to this warmth, this tender heart for others, holding on to other people's sin loosely, especially if they've repented. But that is not a prerequisite for what Paul is talking about here. And lastly, perhaps most difficult of all, in the same vein, he tells us to forgive each other, forgive one another. This should be a regular practice in the community of believers given everything that we learned in 1 through 3. This should be it. Very commonplace. Jesus himself strongly emphasized this to Peter when he said that the brother who continually sins against him should be given, you guys remember, as much as 77 times. Matthew 18, the model for forgiving one another is God's own forgiveness of us. This should be the motivation and the pattern for forgiving others. Uh, in Ephesians 1, 7, we see that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's the extent that was, forgiveness was given to you. 5, 2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's no greater example. We don't have to go anywhere else. No top gun, right? Just look to Christ. Okay, that is the example for which we look at when we look at forgiveness. Some of you guys, and I know you, some of you guys and gals are, this is going to be monumental for what has transpired between some of you, right? Whether it's a spouse or it's somebody who has wounded you within the church or somebody who's left the church. Some of this is monumental in your mind and you've built it up. Some of it's very real, but it's not bigger than your sin against Christ. It's not bigger than your offense to his holiness. I guarantee it. And so you have to start beginning the steps of having a tender heart, putting on kindness, putting on tenderness, and putting on forgiveness with somebody in your life that it is difficult. It's difficult. And I get that. And that's not easy. But we have the power of God to help us. Lastly, nothing to take off here, but put on over the umbrella here is put on love. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We just spoke about this. The continuous display of love for one another is the embodiment of what it means to be a Christian. Nobody does it like we do it because nobody's been the recipient of more love than we have. Paul calls believers to emulate God and display the likeness of our Father, which Christ himself has already shown us how to do. He already did it. That was part of the reason he took on humanity, to give us the blueprint for what we are to do. The ultimate demonstration of love is Jesus' act of laying down his life for his people to procure forgiveness of sins 
to bring us into a relationship with God. And this is what it truly means to love. This has to be the overarching thought process behind this. Otherwise, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. Because it's hard and our humanness fails us. But Christ did it for us and we have to at least try. We have to at least try. So we have this list here. Take off, put on. We're going to move into another section here. I'm going to fly through some of this stuff. So buckle your seatbelts. But we're going to get into this next section of 5, 3 through 14. That was the deep dive. I wanted to make sure that we spoke about the put off, put ons because they're so practical. They're so practical. And you can apply a situation right now if you allow yourself to think about it that you can start taking these steps towards doing. It starts in your heart and then it goes out into actual very real physical action. But this next step here, living as people of the light, 5, 3 through 14. I'm going to read it. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So as in the previous section, Paul here is telling us a bunch of moral exhortations to start doing explain that they're necessary components of our new identity in Christ. Although here, instead of the put off, put on, he uses the darkness and light imagery to characterize the extreme polar differences between the two ways of living. Complete opposites. You can't get more opposite from dark than light. And light here is seen in two ways. To signify distinctively Christian Virtues that are good and true and righteous. But he also shows us light's function of exposing the darkness to the believer's responsibility to expose sinful practices within the community of believers. This was new for me. It was an aha moment. We'll talk a little bit about this, but I'd love to go deep on this. Mark won't let me. He says, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. I always thought that was the unbelieving world. That's us. It's shameful what you do in secret. It's shameful what I do in secret. That's the light. Because you are in light, but you allow yourself to pretend you're in darkness. And so we could go on. We could, I'd love to see what Steve could do with that. That would be amazing. But that was an eye-opening for me. Big time. But let's take this as we can here, going through this here. 
if we're going to be people of the light, we have to make an effort. We have to make a concerted effort. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, verse 3, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Listen, believers, we have to make an effort to eliminate sexual immorality from our lives, to develop a proper attitude toward money that involves curbing the appetite to acquire more and more. This is hard in our culture because both of those things are beating us over the head. You can't go into a grocery store without being succumbed by sexual temptation. You can't even get on your phone or turn on the TV or do anything or walk down the street without the desire to have more and more and more. And this hits at the heart of our culture. It hit the heart of the culture always. This has been the issue for eons, but it is in our face so perversely now. We have to develop a proper attitude towards this. And we have to clean up all kinds of our our crude and sexual humor from our daily talk. We can't even allow the slightest little joke or innuendo. We can't because it's a foothold. And you have to, that whole uh, iteration that, uh, exhortation rather, that Paul gave us on our speech, it's got to carry over into practical ways. You got to shut that spigot off. Because what happens is the water flows backwards and goes into your heart. These lifestyle problems have really plagued every society from every age, but it's bad today. So we have to make an effort. We have to engage ourselves into this fight of choosing not to think as the world thinks. We have to do it differently. We have to develop new lifestyles to do this. If we're going to live as people of the light, our new identity in Christ demands that we renounce Practices, these practices and develop lifestyles that are consistent with who we are in the Lord. He characterizes us as light. He said it similarly in 2 Corinthians 6.14. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? That's the question for us. We do this balancing act of living in the world. We'll talk about that, but not being of the world. Because God is perfectly holy. John declared, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So we as believers can no longer regard ourselves as dark or depraved people, but we are possessors of an entirely new nature. You've got to believe this, or otherwise you've already failed. You have a new nature. We are light. In verse 8, Paul said, for one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. The kind of behavior that, is, that characterize our lives as non-believers is not appropriate. And so we must adopt a lifestyle pattern that is proper among saints. And this will involve not only getting rid of the, the secular stuff, the immorality, the greed, and inappropriate humor. That should be a non-starter for us. But it also involves putting on the goodness and righteousness and truth into every areas of our life. That's the idea from this section here in verse 9. He says, put on goodness, righteousness, and truth. Next, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We've said this a lot. As Christians are not called to isolate ourselves from the world. We have a mission. We have to, we have to get on the mission field, and we have to, sorry, and we have to uh, evangelize, but we can't allow ourselves to be caught up 
throughout this letter, Paul has never advocated an escapism. He's never said, be isolated and cut yourselves off and go live on a mountain and don't, don't engage. But he repeatedly commends us to have a countercultural lifestyle. So we have to be around believers, but we do not have to live like them. He says, don't become partners with them. And so the question just is, is do you look more like the darkness of the world or the light of Christ in your day-to-day interactions? It's a good check. Does anybody outside of church know I'm a believer? When's the last time anybody came up to you and said, your life, I know it's not easy, but you handle it so radically different. What is that hope you have? Or... When have they said, why don't you come out and drink with us after the meetings? Why don't you do that? When you have an opportunity to tell them. Or why do you walk away when we start joking around like boys do? Why do you do that? Has anybody asked you guys anything like that recently? If not, then you might be because they don't recognize a difference on you to them. And that's shameful. And I say that as a fellow transgressor, not as condemning you. But I do condemn you. It's like I condemn myself. You start reading Paul too much, you start talking like him. Everybody's got to here and there, you know. He's like, well, hold on. Actually, yeah, I do think you did something wrong. Um, so that's the idea. Do you look different? And we must be different. We must be the light. And this means that sometimes we make unbelievers feel uncomfortable because we don't do what they do. And God's called us to this high standard. We have to act not from a pious, I'm better than you, No, why? Because we have humility. We have humility. And so it's not, I am just, hey, you know what? Uh, You're a crazy unbeliever, and I don't agree with anything you're doing. It's no, I was you. I get it. I get the appeal. I understand it. I can't do it. I'm different. I've been made new. Lastly, we got to help each other out in this. we got to help our fellow believers We are responsible to help fellow believers get rid of sinful and inappropriate practices. He says here in 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are to expose the sinful practices of our fellow believers. I have failed at this in my lifetime, and I've seen the fruit of that, and and I share in the responsibility of that in my heart. And I hate it, because I didn't have the guts to do the hard thing at the front end. There are a lot of considerations that accompany this. I mean, truly, the, the, the unique circumstances are endless. And we have to think about them. We have to think about how the best way to approach it. Is it right? Is this a pattern that's continuing? Is it a one-time thing? Is this who they are? Have they fallen into this completely? Where are they in their sinful spectrum? And you have to think about all that stuff. We're not getting into all that Right now, this is not an exhortation on the first step of Matthew 18 of going to your brother. But it is to say that part of being light is to shine light on those who are sinful in our own body and helping them. Coming alongside of them. So God has placed believers into a community, into a body. And he wants us to feel a certain level of responsibility towards one another. Paul advised the Galatians, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin 
you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. So be careful. If your desire is to drink heavily, don't necessarily go down and, and to the bar and get your buddy out. Maybe go with a couple of friends, right, so that you're not tempted, right? Be smart and be wise. But you, the important thing is if they're caught in a sin, if you're spiritual, go restore him. Bring him out. Bring her out. And the good news for the erring believer is that if she or he responds to this rebuke, well, then what? What do we know of the beautiful grace and forgiveness of the Lord? We'll receive grace and strength from the Lord. And then he says here, and, and how Paul just so beautifully gives us hope in these circumstances. In 5.14, he says, And Christ will shine upon you. He forgives, man. It's so quick. And, and then we wonder, why did we hide that for so long, right? Every time you guys have been exposed, your sin is out there, and you're like, why was I trying to hide this? This is the best thing that could have ever... Then you want to tell everybody. Hey, I, did, I you know what I did last week? I did this, this, and they're like, hey, that's, that's a little too much information. Like, you just want them to know because you don't want that burden on you once you realize how gracious God is. Okay, let's look at the next section here. Wisdom. We got to put on wisdom. There's two things here we're going to look at. Wisdom and the Spirit. We've got to live in wisdom, 5, uh, 15 through 17, and we have to be filled with the Spirit in 5, 18 through 21. We're going to roll quick, guys. Look carefully then in 15. How you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I love that last part. The Apostle Paul here is commending a balance of wisdom and spirit for walking in a way that will please God and effectively serve in His kingdom among the body of believers. And so some practical applications of that are, one, that our lifestyle and our conduct have to be influenced by wisdom. What does that mean? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. Psalm 111.10. Jeremiah points out, I think I have it up here, I do. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, God, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So we don't have to go far. You want to walk in wisdom, you start with Bible simple. You start with a fear of the Lord, the fear of His holiness, and the gravity that it is to be in His family. That's where you start. Ultimate wisdom starts here. Knowledge of the one living and true God, and a deep respect for all that He reveals about Himself throughout creation. Again, that's why Paul started in 1 through 3. He set the foundation as a fear of God, of who you were, and what He did for you. Now, let me tell you what you got to do about it. Same thing we have to do in our own hearts. And I keep repeating this because this is the thing that you guys screw up on all the time. Why do I know that? Because it's the stuff I screw up on all the time. 
I don't preach that to myself. You have to know who the God of the Bible is. You have to understand the new covenant. Wisdom is predicated on knowing Christ. He is wisdom personified. That means he took on in a personal way as a human being all of these elements. Jesus told his disciples, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And Paul here is warning us that lives, uh, part of wise living, rather, is learning not to waste time. It's a neat little thing he plugs in there, what could be a very esoteric, kind of ethereal, kind of just no God. And he goes into something extremely practical, which is why I love Ephesians so much. Stop wasting time. He values time as a gift from God. Why is this so critical? We'll look at it. One of the practical outworkings of wisdom is denying ourselves the pleasures of wasting time. Why? What gets in the way of all the books that you want to read? Netflix. Baseball. Entertainment. Vacations. Dinners out. Blah, blah, blah. Right? All that stuff. We don't know the God of the Bible because you don't read about the God of the Bible. Why not? Because you waste your time. So it's true in my life anyway. Calvin said this. This is Calvin. To withdraw from the endless allurements, which would easily pervert us, to extricate ourselves from the cares and the delights of the world, and in a word, to renounce every hindrance. Listen, if Calvin had some things that distracted him from his daily walk, that was 400 years ago. Even iPhones back then. Right? How often has an iPhone detracted from your time? And you looked up and said, man, I've been on Instagram or on Pinterest looking at uh, recipes for two hours. You're wasting your time. And so now you're not in the Bible. And now you don't know how to feed your mind. And you're not making good choices because you know more about uh, a recipe on Instagram. Or you know more about the score in Wimbledon, which I'm totally caught up in this year. Right? than I do about the Bible. So Paul associates wisdom with knowing the will of God as well. So don't waste your time and know what the will of the Lord is. And we often think about this, at least I do, in in this idea of finding God's will for specific things, right? Do I take that job or not? Do I marry that gal? Do I marry that guy? You know, do I do all these things? And, you know, what's the will of the Lord? It's really more here what Paul's talking about is really God's grand design, his big picture in all of creation. From the day he made the heavens and the earth until the end when he sums up everything in Christ. It's that, hey, figure out where you fit in here and then how much bigger God is. That's the idea here. Um, Walking in wisdom means learning and knowing God's master plan. Um, It doesn't hurt, right, to get to know the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. That's great. That's good stuff to do. It's a great place to start. But God's wisdom is found in the entire Bible, right? It's found in books about the Bible for those expositors who are really devoted to breaking down concepts, the pastors who write books. That's where you get that stuff. Also, a sensitivity to the leading and indwelling of the Holy Spirit will help you in knowing God's will. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, real quick here. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, that work is foundational, the Holy Spirit's, and it's indispensable for living the Christian life. 
the good news of the new life that Paul reveals in Ephesians is that it's far more possible to do these things because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Without them, without him, we would be stop, you know, stuck right where we started. We would never be able to do this stuff. And so this, a significant facet of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is his work in enabling God's people to get rid of sinful practices and put on the appropriate Christian virtue that we've been talking about here Romans 8.13, Paul told the Romans to put the death of the deeds of the body by what? By the Spirit. He encouraged the Galatians to live by the Spirit so that they would not succumb to the sinful temptations of the flesh. I put this up here because, I'm telling you, I'm going to talk a long time on this stuff, you guys. All right, But he says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So you got this juxtaposition of what your heart, your flesh wants to do, and why don't you do it? It's because the Holy Spirit's in there, helping, fight. And he said he identifies the works of the flesh. See, if these are, are um, recognizable by what we've been talking about, the works of the flesh are evident. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealous, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, dot, 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 dot. All this worldly stuff. But what does the fruit look like? What's the juxtaposition? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You wrap that right on top of Ephesians and you got your put-on list. Right? You got your put-off and your put-on list. The Spirit knows the will of God and will implant the desires and impart the power to believers to go do it. And He wants us to be completely under the influence of the Spirit. By the way, he makes a, a, another very specific um, um, exhortation here. It could be very ethereal, right? This whole idea of walking in the Spirit. But he gives us a very specific thing not to do. I have to address this because it's in here. He says not to come under the influence of alcohol. This is a way that, that, that you can't be under the influence of something else and the Spirit at the same time. Being under the influence of alcohol or any mind-altering drug means that we cannot be under the influence of the Spirit. That is why so many bad decisions by strong believers are made in the circumstances of drinking too much. Now, Paul doesn't completely forbid it here. He doesn't. Calvin said, again, he forbids all excessive and immoderate drinking, but he doesn't forbid drinking. Just be careful, kind of like anger. Watch out. One of the difficulties, just from a practical level, is that people are not good judges of how much alcohol they can handle before it starts to impair their senses or impairs their thinking, their acuity. So if you participate in drinking, it's crucial to be exceedingly sensitive to the judgments and opinions of those who are close to you, your spouse, other people around you. And a good rule is if you choose to consume alcohol, it should be in such moderation that there is no question about your impairment. Or you can do what I did, which, you know, came after years of banging my head against the wall and just stay away from it completely. Stay away from it completely. Which would put you way further away from the line than right up against it where half of us live our lives is right up on the line. If it's not called it something else. And then lastly, lastly, guys, let praise and thankfulness drive your interactions with everyone. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
the, rever- the regular act of getting together and worshiping like we do here. It's beautiful. It's heartfelt. Give thanks for everything Paul says. Constant gratitude to the Father for all he has done in us. And through Christ should be a defining, in and through Christ should be a defining characteristic of our lives. And then I love this, submit to one another. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. It's an attitude of self-denial. It's a concern for the needs of others. This is essential for our worthy walk in the context of unity. If you don't have this, you don't have the love of which Christ had for you. He takes us back to the beginning here in 4.3. He says, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance are vital aspects. And mutual submission is the result of that spirit filling we were just talking about. And then it's easy from here to see the attitudes and behaviors that reflect arrogance and harshness and impatience and intolerance harms our unity. But it also keeps us from effectively ministering to one another. And this hinders the work of the Spirit. And the motivating factor for all of this, obviously, is the fear of Christ Paul ends with. It's out of reverence for Christ that we do these things. After all, isn't it true that it is to Christ that we owe everything? And so that motivates us. So let's close in prayer. Thank you for your time. Sorry, guys. Lord God, thank you for these truths. Thank you for your practical ways that we can honor you. I pray for each of us that we be convicted where we are holding on dearly to the old self. And Lord, that you would give us the strength to start right now putting on the new self to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.